Uh, Turn, if you would, uh, please, to the 10th chapter of Luke as we continue to move through this gospel. Luke chapter 10, we finished uh, the ninth chapter last week, and if you remember, it was a it was a very unique, very Lucan, very historian-oriented presentation, a, a sort of staccato presentation of, of uh, eight different vignettes, most of them only two verses long, eight different individuals who came across the path of Jesus. Jesus has, has been to the Mount of Transfiguration up uh, as far north as as he was uh, way, way up here by Mount Hermon. And now he's coming uh, not only off the mountain, but he's going to head toward Jerusalem. That's the 51st verse of chapter 9. And as he's moving, what he is doing is training those 12 men, those 12 disciples who he knows, they don't know this yet, but he knows those 12 men are going to be the nucleus to plant the church, uh, which has led... 2,100 or so years later uh, to Greenville, South Carolina and all points on all continents. Uh, But those men to do that, they have to learn quite a bit. And he's, he's frankly, he's getting increasingly in their face. You remember a couple of times in that conclusion of the ninth chapter, he was, it it even seemed he was irritated, which would certainly be understandable. Uh, but uh, he went through these these folks who had insufficient faith, who were fearful of repercussions, who had too much pride, who were too impatient, who were too intolerant, who were too unmerciful, and who were just, uh, bottom line, unwilling to count the cost of being his disciples. And he's, he's increasingly strident as he moves through this uh, gospel uh, toward a cross. He knows where he's headed, but again, no one else does, but... Again, in 51, verse 51, he turns his face toward Jerusalem, it says. And um, the summary, again, Jesus is ramping up the seriousness of the training. And as he is training these 12, he's training you and he's training me. Because everything that applies to them almost uh, is going to be asked of us as well. Now, this week, what we're going to see is a watershed event. he's going to draw a line in the sand. It won't be the only line in the sand he draws, but he's going to go toward an utterly non-negotiable mandate in the first 16 verses of chapter 10. Uh, Let me read the 16 verses, and then we're going to go back and open them a bit. It begins this way. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. 
and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. (coughs) Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who hears you, or rejects you rather, rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Uh, this is uh, this is a first of all, it's a unique passage to Luke. Uh, this sending of the seventy-two is not is not found in the other gospels. It's interesting uh, for many reasons. Number one. Uh, these aren't the disciples. He, he's been with the 12. He's, he's sent the 12 out already, two by two, but this is an additional uh, larger group. And uh, in one sense, it's, it's indicative. It's an early, very, very early indicator of the missionary calling uh, that the church will have. But uh, when you look at verse one of chapter 10, uh, more preparation, more, more very, very significant events, whether it's healing, whether it's raising people from the dead, whatever the events have been that we've already seen, uh, this is yet another one so that when Jesus finally does get to Jerusalem, there's going to be no doubt whatsoever in who he is. Now, there will be people who misunderstand, but anybody who has gotten word of the things that have been associated with Jesus will have no more excuse uh, to misinterpret who he is and what what kind of watershed he represents. Now, verses two and three, when he's sending out the 72, he sends them out with good news and bad news. Uh, He says, the harvest is plentiful. And that's kind of exciting to hear until he lets the other shoe fall, that the laborers are few. Therefore, he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Every Wednesday night, as you know, we meet and we, we hear about some uh, mission agency, some mission uh, couple or, or person that this church supports. And we always have a time of prayer. This is extremely important. Uh, this past Wednesday, uh, I had the chance to speak a little bit with with. Um, the couple who was here and they they were to the point that in their humble opinion, nothing is more important than that. Uh, the prayer of the saints uh, means much more than, than we think it does. So uh, Jesus is, is uh, talking to these laborers that he's sending out, telling them to make certain they continue to pray to the Lord of the harvest. Now in verse three, is where he says, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. In other words, the work is going to be very dangerous. 
Uh, Jesus, again, has been emphasizing this. The disciples and everyone who come close to him up to the ninth, through the ninth chapter, very understandably, when they see him raise someone from the dead or heal someone who is sick, someone who is demon-possessed, that is what appeals to them. And they say, boy, come help me that way. Uh, just as, as Dennis so well prayed this morning a while ago, uh, yes, it, it's wonderful to be able to come uh, to a God we know understands our aches and pains and the, and the very serious natures, including death itself that we undergo, but that is not the centerpiece. And Jesus is constantly telling them, don't get lost in the weeds. Those are the weeds. He could heal. He could have healed the whole universe. He could have prevented sin from ever being present at all, but that was not what he chose to do. His, he's constantly telling them, come back to the center of who I am. I am God incarnate, and I am coming for redemption of sin. Uh, so as he goes through these, uh, these opening uh, salvo here, he's talking about the fact that they're going to be lambs in the midst of wolves. This has been an understanding and an assumption among missionaries from the first century on down. Uh, the first, uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful book, a little book called The St. Andrew's Seven, uh, about these seven young men who, who became uh, Christians and went out, uh, decided to be missionaries. They all went out in, into the world as missionaries, mainly to Africa. And in those days, normally when missionaries went to Africa, they packed their belongings in coffins because they expected not to come back alive. So they didn't want to, uh, to be a burden to anyone. They were, they were ready to be either killed or die on the field. There's another little book, Korean Pentecost, one of the most fascinating stories. Uh, this, this little bitty peninsula right here, only half of it, is the largest mission sending country on the planet today. It's not America, it's South Korea. There are more Presbyterians in South Korea than there are in the United States of America. It all started with the Korean Pentecost in the 1930s. You ought to get that book and, and read it and read how the first group of missionaries sent were killed and never came back. So they sent another group around 1937 to see what happened to the first group. And they found not only had they been killed, but the people had taken the Bibles that they had with them at the time and they found churches. Uh, rudimentary to be sure, but the people had simply taken the word, read it, been influenced by the Holy Spirit, and they were moving forward in the development of churches. So this, uh, Jesus is sending these people out, and they all know that this is not going to be an easy assignment. Never has been, never will be. Uh, the travel instructions are interesting in verses four through seven. We've seen before uh, in the first nine chapters when Jesus has sent people out, there's always fascination by commentators. Frankly, I don't think it's that important. Uh, but in this case, he says, don't take anything. Don't take money with you. Don't take a knapsack with you. Don't delay. If you meet somebody in the road, don't sit, sit by and talk to them. You're, you're on a mission and I want you to get there and start in on it. He says, don't even take sandals. Now he doesn't mean go barefoot. He's talking about don't take extra pairs of sandals. Uh, you're not going to be there that long, but I want you totally devoted to the mission. In verses five, six, and seven of that 
chapter, interesting. He says, when you go into these villages, I'm sending you. And remember, he is, uh, there's, a, there's a disagreement among commentators of whether he's going into Samaria. That's where he was last week at the end of chapter 9. So he's either going straight down from the Sea of Galilee into this region of Samaria, or he's crossing the Jordan, and he's in the Transjordan where he was when he healed that demoniac. Either way, he is among people that are strange to these 72 people that are going out. He's either among Samaritans or he's mainly among Gentiles. All of these 72 are Jews. So this is going to be an odd experience for them. So he says, go into the house. When you go into a village, go into the house uh, that uh, you are led to enter and say, peace be to this house. And he says, if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest with him. If not, your peace will return to you. So you see behind the scenes here, something is going on with the Holy Spirit as these uh, 72 go about their business. He says, remain in the same house, uh, eat, drink what they provide, don't go from house to house as you get to, uh, to, this, uh, to these villages. Now, the centerpiece of it, the, the message and the power, uh, basically in verse five it begins and then in verse eight through 12. There are three different messages that Jesus gives them. The first one is in verse five, and we've seen that. Peace be to this house. He, uh, these 72 are given, just as the disciples, when they were sent out two by two, these 72 go with the power of the spirit upon them. Jesus has says, I'm giving you power to heal the sick. Uh, this is also power. Jesus says, pronounce peace to this house. Pronounce God's benediction. You have the power through me to bring the benediction of God to this household. That's the first message they have. Now in verses eight and nine, if the response is positive, he says, if the town you enter receives you, then in verse nine, heal the sick in that town. Not only speak to them and preach to them, but he gives them also the power to heal the sick. That too is an early indicator of the double mission of the church. The church always not only speaks issues of truth, but acts it. Uh, the notion of, of um, stewardship, the notion of, of koinonia in this particular church, the notion of going out and being with one another so that we are leaning on each other. It is frankly what one of the worst thing, maybe the worst thing that COVID did was get a lot of people staying at home. God's people need to be leaning on each other. We need to be together. I understand their reasons that uh, in some cases that, that seemed preferable and maybe continues to do so. However, uh, this, this notion of outreach involves all of us leaning on one another and assisting and uh, getting to know one another and, and growing in grace together not just as individuals. And when he gets to verse nine, the second message, uh, not only heal the sick, but tell them that the kingdom of God has come near to you. In other words, these, these are representatives. And remember again, what, what we're reading here is true of every Christian forever. It is as true of you and me as it is these 72. Uh, you could argue perhaps we don't, we're not given the, the ability to heal, although we are given the ability to pray for healing, 
and God will listen and answer those prayers in his way and his time. So maybe tangentially. However, the kingdom of God has come near to you because someone has come in with the message of Jesus Christ. When someone comes in with the gospel, wherever that may be, uh, they come with the kingdom uh, of God uh, directly. Uh, so it's, it's again, so important and so easy to get lost. And when, when you go through the experience of, of being a, a church, uh, a churchman, you, you're used to coming and you see, well, the, the guy up there behind the pulpit or the guy or the ladies who are leading a tea, uh, it, it's not, they've got all this stuff and I'm just here to, to absorb it. Every single believer comes with the power of the kingdom, comes with the gospel, comes with whatever knowledge of scripture he or she has and therefore has a great power uh, inherent in that. Now, verses 10, 11, and 12, if the response is negative, uh, this is, is not going to be too, uh, too pleasant. If you go into the town in verse 10, if the town does not receive you, then go into the streets and give them the third message. The third message is found in verses 11 and 12. Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Uh, Jesus' proclamation of, of judgment, of course, uh, continues. He said, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now think about that. Think, you, you know the story of, of Sodom and Gomorrah from, from Genesis. You know uh, how we... Today, we're still living the sins of Sodom. Uh, how in the world could it be more bearable for Sodom on that day? That day, by the way, is, is a reference to the final judgment when Jesus will come back and everybody will be judged who has ever lived on the planet. But uh, how could it be so much worse? How could anything be worse than Sodom? But it is, and the reason is these towns have been visited by the kingdom of God directly. They have more responsibility, therefore. So when they choose to ignore it or turn away from the message that these people are bringing to them, the onus is greater on them and they will suffer more for it. Their judgment uh, that will come on them will be worse than Sodom. Uh, Sodom so early in, in the story of scripture was of course not, uh, uh, Jesus hadn't been incarnate. There were the whole of, of Old Testament history had not unfolded really. Uh, so Sodom would, would be judged for its in, enormous uh, sinfulness. But the point is that where the gospel goes, the people who reject it take on an even greater onus of punishment and judgment than a place like Sodom. And that is a very sobering thought. In particular, when you think about the country that you and I are so fortunate to have been born into, because I suppose you could argue this, but um, certainly the United States of America has, has been granted at least as much, if not more, insight into the gospel of Jesus Christ than any other culture in the history of the world. Therefore, we have 
more responsibility for what we do with that gospel than any other country in the history of the world. And what we are doing with it uh, is, uh, is beyond shameful and far worse than anything Sodom ever did. So you see why this, this passage through these first 16 uh, verses are a watershed. <clears throat> There's a line drawn in the sand. There has always been and there always will be a line in the sand wherever the gospel goes. Uh, there is no more excuse. The person who has heard the gospel uh, has heard the gospel and, and cannot, uh, that can't be eradicated and it's then dependent upon uh, that person to respond. So I want to get um, a little bit deeper into this watershed. Verses 13 through 16. Uh, Jesus talks about three different uh, towns here, pronounces woe on them. Woe to Chorazin, woe to Bethsaida. We've seen these. Uh, before, when he's up here around, I remember Jesus uh, is raised, and I apologize for standing in front of what I'm pointing to, but I don't know how I can do it any other way. Uh, Jesus has been raised. Here's Nazareth. Here's Capernaum. That's the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has been raised in this region, so he knows these cities. If you visit Capernaum, uh, even much worse, Bethsaida and um, and Chorazin, if you visit them today in Israel, all you will see, in addition to tour buses, you will you'll wonder why is it, has the bus stopped here? Because you're looking at a field, uh, primarily. It's north of the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's, it's beautiful, rolling uh, country, fertile. But then you start looking around and there are various rocks and, and stones, hewn stones scattered around. That's what's left of Chorazin and Bethsaida today. Uh, and uh, Jesus here is, is pronouncing woe to them. The third, the third city is Capernaum. That's again where Jesus spent so much of his time, where he preached in the synagogue today in Capernaum. It sits right on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and it has the synagogue is being uh, excavated archaeologically where Jesus would have, have preached. Uh, but again, it's a city of ruins. And for Jesus to have, have pronounced that uh, in verse 15, and you, Capernaum, uh, you've got to believe that when Jesus got to that statement, he is, um, he's, he's, he's thinking about a lot of, of issues of, of how much of him that town received. And he, he says, will you be exalted to heaven? And one would probably think, well, of course, that's where the son of man spent so much of his early years, you should be brought down to Hades. Uh, so again, everything is in about Christendom and the gospel message is a watershed. It's a line in the sand that does not move. Uh, there are There is the response of faith, uh, which uh, is immediately uh, taken in. In fact, that is it's a gift uh, given to uh, to an individual, but uh, there's the response of unbelief and that that um, there's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. There's no softening. There's, there's, uh, there's the line in the sand. Now I want to um, get to a couple of, of books, not surprisingly. Uh, I've got three books here. These three books span 100 years. <clears throat> and I want to 
uh, to mention a few things from them. Uh, this first book is part of the collected writings of a man named Francis Schaeffer. Uh, most of you are familiar with Francis Schaeffer. He, he was a wonderful, wonderful apologist, meaning he, he defended Christendom and Christianity uh, in wonderful ways. He started a, 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 a sort of an apologetic uh, think tank, if you will. That, that's probably not the best way to describe it, called Labrie in Switzerland, where he and his wife Edith lived. And what Labrie was, was a place where anybody who was, who anybody whatsoever, didn't, didn't matter. But in particular, if you had questions about the gospel or about scripture or whatever, uh, or you just wanted to argue with somebody, Schaefer was more than, than available and up to the challenge. And people would go to visit him and, and you would stay at Labrie uh, at this little, uh, little cabin, little outpost in Switzerland and talk to this man. Well, over his career, Schaefer wrote many, many books. I highly recommend this series. This is volume four of a five book series. This is the most readable apologist I have ever encountered. Francis Schaefer is totally readable, easily readable, and profoundly insightful. So I, if you don't have uh, this little collected volume of Francis Schaefer, uh, you should get it. It's, it's got all of his books. The book I want to pay attention to now, relative to Luke chapter 10, volume four, the, the book is called The Great Evangelical Disaster. Now this was published in 1984. Here's, uh, here's what he says as an introduction. The statement which I am making in the pages of this book, meaning the great evangelical disaster, is perhaps the most important statement I have ever written. Now that should cause you to sit up just a tad and uh, take account of what is coming next. Here's a sampling or two of some very insightful statements. He's talking about the effects of the enlightenment, that time in, in uh, European history, in particular, where, uh, where godlessness was given philosophical weight. Uh, to me, that's an oxymoron. As you know, I'm not a fan of philosophers. Anybody that looks at this and says, I don't know if that's really there or not, I, I don't know. I don't want to spend a lot of time reading about whether this is actually here or not. It looks like it to me, feels like it is walking, it's quacking, I think it's a duck. But at any rate, <laughs> the central ideas of the Enlightenment, he says, stand in complete antithesis to Christian truth. That's what came in through this uh, people like Rousseau, uh, Nietzsche, Spinoza, all those, those great philosophers, and they were brilliant men, lost but very brilliant. Uh, they are an attack on God himself and his character. In the late 19th century, so starting in the 1800s, it was these ideas which began to radically transform Christianity in America. Uh, let's see, undercut the authority of scripture. We can be thankful for those who argued strenuously against the new methods. And he mentions A.A. A. Hodge, B.B. Warfield, and a man named J. Gresham Machen. I'm gonna get back to Machen in a bit. Uh, those holding the liberal ideas of the Enlightenment and the destructive methods of biblical criticism came into power and control in the denominations. By the 1930s, liberalism had swept through most of the denomination and the battle was all but lost. 
That's uh, 90 years ago. He says, the turning point. In the mid-1930s, there occurred an event, which I would say marks the turning point of the century concerning the breakdown of our culture. By 1936, the liberals were so in control of the Northern Presbyterian Church that they were able to defrock Dr. J. Gresham Machen. That's the event that he thinks best represents the turning point of uh, the devaluing of the gospel and Christendom in America. He says it marked the culmination of the drift of the Protestant churches from 1900 to 1936. It was this drift which laid the base for the cultural, social, moral, legal, and governmental changes from that time to the present. Now think again, this is 1984. So this is 40 years ago that he wrote this. Now think what's happened uh, in the cultural, social, moral, legal, governmental, educational aspects of America in terms of, of drifting. When the Reformation churches shifted, the Reformation consensus was undercut. The news about Machen was the most significant U.S. news in the first half of the 20th century. The culmination of the long trend toward liberalism within the Protestant church and in most denominations. Uh, that, think about that statement. Forget the Great Depression, forget World War II. He's saying the greatest thing that happened in America is that, that impact of liberalism. Likewise, there was J. Gresham Machen, the distinguished professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. In 1923, Machen published a book called Christianity and Liberalism. The fundamentals themselves, which were attacked by liberalism, are the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible, the deity of Christ and his virgin birth. Machen wrote another book called The Virgin Birth. The substitutionary atonement of Christ's death the literal resurrection of Christ from the dead and the literal return of Christ. If you take all that out, there is no Christendom. There is no Christianity. Now, what I forgot to tell you in this, in here, again, Schaefer is in Switzerland. He used to do a lot of hiking, as I guess most everybody would probably do if they lived in Switzerland. But he talked about a ridge he hiked the ridge pretty often. And he says this ridge was peculiar because when it rained, water would flow down both sides of the ridge. The water that flowed down one side entered a lake, which entered a river, which entered finally the Rhine River. The water that hit the other side of the ridge flowed down into a lake, into a river, and into the Rhone River. So R-H-I-N-E and R-H-O-N-E. The watershed that that Schaefer talks about, I've drawn, I realize nobody passed the first three rows can see this, uh, but that's Switzerland, that's the ridge line. There's a blue line going forward, that's the Rhine River. It goes north and empties into the cold North Sea. The Rhone River, which came off the other side of the ridge, flows south into the sunny and warm Mediterranean, and Schaefer goes into about five pages of description. That's Christendom. That's the watershed. We're all sitting there on the ridge. You accept the, the statements of scripture and you're going to go into pleasant waters. Uh, you deny it, you're going to go down the other side of the ridge. Uh, now, he mentions Machen. Here is Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. 
one of the most important books uh, printed in in the last 2,000 years, frankly. And here is why it caused such an amazing uh, controversy. On page two, he's just getting started. Uh, this is a professor. If you were here last two Wednesday nights ago, we talked about Machen a good bit. He says, in the sphere of religion, the present time is a time of conflict. He's writing this in 1923, so 100 years ago. The great redemptive religion, which has always been known as Christianity, is battling against a totally diverse type of religious belief, which is only the more destructive of the Christian faith because it makes use of traditional Christian terminology. This modern non-redemptive religion is called modernism or liberalism. In fact, it is denial of the entrance of the creative power of God in connection with the origin of, of Christianity. On page six, this is the last statement I'll read here, and this is the one that got Machen into such hot, hot water for saying what he should have said and what every Christian should say and know. He says, despite the liberal use of traditional phraseology, modern liberalism not only is a different religion from Christianity, but belongs in a totally different class of religions. We tend to see the church in America today as all even. Some of them are a little bit to the right, some of them a little bit to the left, but they're all, they all have crosses, most of them. Crosses on the top. What Majin is saying is a church that has left scripture, has left those five fundamentals of the Christian faith are not Christian. They are not even religions, in his humble opinion, that deserve any credence whatsoever. Now, he was willing to make that statement. They kicked him out of the ministry. The Presbyterian church kicked him out of the ministry for making those statements. But Machen was not fearful of describing the watershed that Jesus has just told these 72 and that Jesus tells every one of us here today. Third and final book. This one was read four months ago, written four months ago. Uh, this is a man named Carl Truman. He was uh, academic dean at Westminster in Philadelphia. He's now a professor out at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, this little book, uh, short, readable, Strange New World. What Truman does in this book is to take what Machen saw coming, what Schaefer described, but what is here with manifold tentacles into every culture center of our culture and he explains how we got here and why the average American is making statements that all of us would be utterly stunned would ever be spoken by anybody, much less someone living in America. So if you want to figure out what's going on, uh, Carl Truman's book, A Strange New World, a little bitty thing, easy to read, shocking, but you will read it and say, ah, now I get it. So the point again here in this uh, passage, uh, the conclusion, whenever the gospel is preached, whenever it's taught, whenever missionaries go out, whenever pastors speak, wherever the church meets, wherever you meet across the fence line with your next door neighbor and speak the gospel to them, you are giving them truth, true truth, and everything else is falsehood. It is a watershed. It is not, it is a black and white issue. Now there's give and take. Uh, there's, you know, some... We don't all come to the Lord by Damascus Road experiences. Some, some people 
have to talk it through, have to, frankly, I prefer that. Uh, but the point is, there is no dumbing down of the truth. Uh, I remember an apologetic uh, lesson or two I had to learn at Westminster myself uh, that, that you don't ever leave the high ground. Uh, the, the apologetic professor that, that, uh, that came to Westminster from Princeton when Machen left Princeton and started Westminster Seminary, a man named Cornelius Van Til. Uh, he is very, very philosophical in his books. He was a brilliant man. I, frankly, I need people to tell me what Van Til said. When I got there, Van Til had retired, but he was still alive. So I went to his house as a student at Westminster one day, and I, I thought, why, why have people tell me what the horse talks about? When the horse is here, I'll get it from the horse's mouth. So I went to Van Til, one of the nicest gentlemen I've ever had the pleasure. He was, he was giving me books because he knew he wasn't going to live too much longer. So he'd give me all these books. Uh, and as much as I loved and treasured that experience, I don't think I understood a word he said. <laughs> however, however, what Van Til, the best thing Van Til, in my opinion, ever wrote is a little bitty five-page thing uh, where he says, I, why, why do I believe in God? Because the Bible tells me so. End of story. I don't need to know anymore. Uh, there's a lot to be learned, of course, in scripture, but, but his point was, if I'm a Christian, I occupy the high ground. So when I come to an unbeliever, I don't give up my Christian faith to get down on neutral turf or, or get down on his or her level, whatever. I can, can speak and I will speak with the truth of scripture dead set in my heart, in my mind, and I will not retreat from them. That's the watershed that Jesus gives these 72 people in Luke chapter 10. And that's the watershed and the impetus that he gives to you and to me to take this gospel out and never ever retreat from it. Even if you're sent among wolves and the wolves burn you at the stake, if they shred you, bodily, whatever, those things can have happened, will happen again, doesn't matter. The truth of the gospel stands inviolate. Let's pray. Father, uh, this uh, little vignette again in, here in Luke, this story that's unique to Luke, these 72 are sent out just as we are sent out. Even if we don't sign up to be missionaries, we are still sent Every person we encounter is a person that you have sovereignly sent before us. Uh, every person that we've known, every person we speak with are opportunities not to run over them with the gospel, not to be so rigid uh, that we, we present an unsavory position, but Father, we have been sent to love them into the kingdom, to present them the truth. We don't have to know all the philosophy behind it. We don't have to be brilliant scholars. We simply have to tell them Jesus Christ and Jesus alone saves. Come to him in faith, believe, and you will have eternal life. And you will then start to grow and understand this crazy world we live in. Father, help us to be intrepid, humble, lovers of truth, the truth of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.